you'll start making your way back to your seats. As you do, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. To Ephesians chapter 2. Again, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at Newbury Church. And we are in the midst of a series, what we do at the start of each year during the month of January, uh, is we re-examine our mission statement as a church. Our mission statement is that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel, and we're working through it piece by piece, and I love how God kind of orchestrates things, because none of the brothers, when it was planned for Casey to come this morning, none of them knew what I was going to preach about, no one kind of knew the structure, and the Lord kind of orchestrated in such a way where both Casey, through his speaking, and Lance, through his prayer, basically preached my sermon this morning, um, so I got to try to do it better than them. Um, But we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about the fact that our mission statement isn't just something we made up, but we believe that it's, it's ingrained in all of Scripture. And so we're just walking through the book of Ephesians chapter by chapter over the next few weeks and just picking apart our mission statement, which can be argued and articulated and defined from Scripture. So this morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. I want to read the chapter in its entirety, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 1. Hear what Paul writes. He says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. We too All previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Verse 11, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. I love verse 14. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. And this morning, I want us to consider the section of our mission statement to make disciples. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. To make disciples. <clears throat> you know, with it being uh, freezing cold out this morning, talking about summer seems like a great illustration to start us off. <laughs> You know, one of the great joys of summer, if you're like me, I love summer. You know, kiddos are out of school. One of the things I love about it is the ability to get away with the family for vacation. And for the past few years, one of our favorite places, mine, my wife, the kiddos, our favorite places has been to go to Aaliyah's dad's cabin up in northern Minnesota. Uh, now, he sold it, so it was our favorite place. I'm not bitter at all. It's not our favorite place anymore. No, but it was always a trek to get up there. It was about a 14-hour drive to get from here to the cabin, but it was always worth it. His cabin sat on Lake Cavacona, right? So you literally walk out on the deck, and I learned that what I thought was the backyard on a lake is actually the front yard. And so you're looking at the lake. It's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And, and just to be clear, the lakes up there, they're built different than the lakes that we have around here. All the lakes in Minnesota are formed by glaciers. Um, they're deep lakes. So Lake Capicona at its deepest point is about 130 feet deep, which makes for a very exciting encounter when the boat you're in starts to sink when you're at that point. That's a different story for a different day. But we, we loved going up there. We loved getting away. We loved being in nature. We loved being on the water. But there was one aspect of going to the cabin that in my mind will remain a staple for as long as I remember it. You see, every time we went to visit the cabin, on one of the large counters in between the kitchen and the dining table, there was always a puzzle being worked on, always. Sometimes it was further along, sometimes it had just been started, but the understanding was at any point during your stay there, sit down, work on the puzzle, put a few pieces together. You know, we always tried to finish a puzzle, but there was always a puzzle. So at random times, you'd find people, they're sitting with family, talking, just working on this, on this puzzle. Now, sitting on the counter next to the pieces was always the box with the picture on it. One year when we arrived, we got settled in. I kind of went and sat at the counter and started talking with family. And while I was there, I just decided to start working on the puzzle that had clearly just been started because they only had the edges done. That's the way you start a puzzle for all you people that don't work on puzzles. You start with the edges. And the edges had been done, but that was it. And so I looked at the pieces. I had no idea what the picture was supposed to be. So what I did is I instinctively reached for the box where it normally was, but there was no box there. So I looked around didn't see a box, turned around, looked at them. There was no box. And I thought, well, that's strange. I'll just put some of the pieces together and I'll find the box later. So I started to look for puzzle pieces, found a couple that connected based on the lines and the colors. But I got frustrated very quickly because I don't know if you ever tried this, but it's really hard to complete some of those huge puzzles if you don't know what the picture is that you're trying to make. Here's why I tell that story. Because if we are going to be a church, 
As our mission statement declares, it exists to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering with the gospel and going with the gospel. We have to understand at a base level what it is we're actually trying to make. Let let me put it another way. In order to make disciples, at a very basic level, we have to know what a disciple is. Now, I know when we talk about being a disciple, there are a thousand different directions that you could take that conversation. But what Ephesians 2 does is it boils down discipleship to its most basic form. And what Paul communicates is two foundational aspects of being a disciple. And for those of us who are in Christ, these two foundational aspects are true of us as well. So here's what I want to do this morning as we continue to think through our mission statement that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. What I want to do is consider what we mean when we say first that we are disciples and that we want to make disciples because we need to know who we are in Christ and what it is we are trying to produce when we say we exist to make disciples. So... If you remember back to last week, Ephesians 1, we considered the first two words of our mission statement, that we exist. We talked about how our individual and corporate identity is rooted in our union with Christ, the fact that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. We talked about how our very existence and our purpose, it's not merely described by Jesus, it's defined by Jesus. And as Christians, we define our existence by Jesus. But what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 2 is he's revealing how we come to find our identity in Jesus and what that identity ultimately means. Therefore, what Paul's doing is he's defining key aspects of what it means to be a disciple. So here's my ultimate hope this morning. I'm going to tell you at the front end. I hope that as we consider what it means for you to be a disciple, that it would lead to praise and worship directed at God for all that he has done in our lives. But second... I hope that it will provide clarity and motivation on what it means for us to actually make disciples. Are you with me? All right, so here's the first foundational aspect of being a disciple that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter two. First, a disciple is an individual who is reconciled to God. A disciple at its core, at its basic level, is an individual who is reconciled to God. We see it there in verses one through 10. So I'm gonna read it again. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Many of us know this passage of scripture, right? I quote it often. I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel in scripture. It it explains what Christ has done for us, but Paul is doing more 
than simply showing us what Christ has done. He's defining who we are as disciples in light of Christ's redemptive work. So let me show you. Paul begins in those first three verses by explaining who we were before we were saved by Jesus. All right? And so in this, you'll notice that Paul doesn't hold any punches. Right? Even in the first four words, and you were dead. It's a great start. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedience. So what Paul is communicating right off the jump is that apart from Christ, it wasn't just that we needed a little help. It wasn't that we were doing all right. We just needed a little bit more morality. It wasn't that we were struggling a bit, but overall we were good people. Paul is saying that apart from Jesus, there is no spiritual life in you. You were dead. He reemphasizes this in chapter four when speaking of the Gentiles prior to coming to Christ. And he says in Ephesians four, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Here it is, excluded from the life of God. The reason, Paul says, that they were dead apart from Christ is because they were slaves to sin, slaves to the world, and slaves to Satan. That's not a really pretty picture, but it's honest. That we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we are dead because we are a slave to our sin, we are a slave to this world, and we are a slave to Satan. And so in reality, it really kind of does stand in stark contrast to the sentiment that so many want to offer that I'm a pretty good person. Paul's saying we're not. But Paul isn't trying to single any one person out here. He says in verse three that we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. So all of us were like this at one point. I don't know if you know this, but nobody comes out a Christian. No one has been a Christian their whole life. I kind of chuckle on people's testimonies. I usually know what they mean when they're like, I've been a Christian my whole life. You haven't been a Christian your whole life. At some point, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But here's why this is such an important thing for us to remember. Because if we are honest, you and I are tempted to judge a person's ability to become a disciple of Jesus based on how bad we perceive their sin to be. Let me say that again. Like We are tempted to judge a person's ability to become a disciple of Jesus based on how bad we perceive their sin to be. And you don't have to say amen because I know I'm right. We are tempted to think that somebody's sin is so bad that it's impossible for them to be a disciple. But church, can I just tell you that at some point or another, somebody probably looked at you and was tempted to think that there's no way this person can become a disciple of Jesus. But can we just praise God for a minute that God's ability to save has never depended on people's perception? Because the miracle of salvation, church, is not that God can save a person caught in this sin or that God can save a person caught in that sin. The miracle of salvation, right? That's all light work. The miracle of salvation is that God can take dead bones and breathe life into them. The miracle of salvation is that God can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And what this text is positioned to teach us is that no one is worse off than anyone else because if you're dead, you're dead. But Paul wants to be clear about something else as well. Our slavery to sin, to this world, and to Satan, it wasn't forced on us. Nobody was forced to sin. We wanted it. 
right? We were, as Paul writes, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. That word inclination, as how it's translated in the CSB that I'm reading from, it could also be translated as desires or wishes or pleasures. In other words, we desired sin. We found our pleasure in sin. We delighted in sin. And then Paul says, and as a result, you were by nature children under wrath. Ultimately, what Paul is trying to get us to see here in these first three verses is that because of our sin, we are separated from God. And what Paul's doing is reminding us of the devastation that sin has caused. Ultimately, he's reminding us of Genesis chapter 3, where the fall of man begins. You know the story. Adam and Eve are walking in perfect fellowship with God, right? They're delighting in his presence. At some point, God tells them, hey, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that, for if you eat of it, you'll surely die. We don't know how long they avoided that tree. You know that, right? They could have avoided that for 10 minutes, 10 years, 10 hundred years. We don't know how long they avoided the tree, but at some point, that's, that fruit started to look appealing to them. And they ate, and you know how the story goes. They hid from the presence of God after they ate, Adam and Eve, because they felt shame for the first time. And God asks a very significant question in Genesis 3, 9. Where are you? That's not a question where God's trying to figure out that location. He knows exactly where. It's an ethical question. Because God is highlighting the fact that there is now separation between between us. And then God makes that even more known when he removes Adam and Eve from the garden. What sin causes is separation. So again, Paul is highlighting the separation that exists between us and God apart from Christ. He is reminding us that we were not always disciples, but praise God, the chapter does not end there. Because then at the beginning of verse four come, in my opinion, two of the sweetest words in all of scripture, but God. You do know we have a but God faith, right? Where like I almost fell, but God. I didn't know how I was going to make it through, but God. The doctor said there was nothing more they could do, but God. I thought my life was meaningless, but God. I thought I had no purpose, but God. I didn't think I would ever have joy, but God. I didn't think I'd ever have hope, but God. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in sin. You are saved by grace. And church, if I'm honest, I'm convinced the reason that doesn't cause so many of us to shout with joy is because we've forgotten from where God has saved us from. I remember who I was before I met Jesus. I remember the depth of my sin, my desire for it, how much control it had over me. And I remember the moment that Jesus looked beautiful to me. But God. But notice this. In salvation, God has not only saved us from wrath, but he has reconciled us back to him through Christ. I mean, look at verses six through nine. He says, he also raised us up with him. So God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavens, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Again, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. We are, church, right now, seated with Jesus. Jesus. 
It's a mystery to me. But that's what Paul is telling us. And I don't know if you remember where Jesus is seated. So let me remind you with what the author of Hebrews tells us. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And what Paul is saying is that where Jesus is, that's where we are right now, in the presence of God. And in this, Paul is declaring the beautiful truth that the relationship that was broken in Genesis 3 is restored in Jesus. And so being a disciple of Jesus means that we are reconciled to God. But I have to make sure that you get this. Well, that is, again, a foundational aspect of being a disciple. Discipleship doesn't stop there because look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Paul throws this in out of necessity because he wants to make sure that we get that while the focus is on our standing with God, that's not all that being a disciple is about. So let me say it like this. Reconciliation is not only focused on your standing with God. It's also focused on your walking in this world. That's why when Jesus says in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, he expects that his disciples, as they make disciples, will walk with disciples to teach them everything that he has commanded so that they could live in this reconciled relationship with God. The foundation of our discipleship is reconciliation with God, but that reconciliation demands something of us that we actually live as if we are reconciled to God, that we agree with God, that what he says is right and what he calls us to do, we should do. And as I always say, so many of you have heard it so many times, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not just save us from something. It saves us for something. And what it saves us for is walking in fellowship with God by being obedient to all of his good commands. And not just the ones that fit neatly into the life you already want to live. But that we would submit to all that God has called us to, believing that what he has called us to is best. So we see in verses 1 through 10 that a foundational aspect of being a disciple is that a disciple is an individual who is reconciled to God. But Paul wants us to see more. So the second foundational aspect of being a disciple is that a disciple is an individual who is reconciled to others. A disciple is an individual who is reconciled to others. I want to read again verses 11 through the end. Will you scroll these on the screen so I don't have to hit the button myself and try to keep up with it? So this is what Paul writes. He says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one, that's Jew and Gentile, he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. 
He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have access to one spirit. We have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, which Christ himself with Christ himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole building being put together grows into a holy temple. So here in these verses, Paul addresses the truth that being reconciled to God must lead to being reconciled to others. This goes back to what we talked about last week. The Bible knows nothing about being in right relationship with God while ignoring God's people. I mean, we see the very truth we talked about last week in verse 16, where God is reconciling one body to himself, the church, his bride. And being reconciled with God provides and anticipates reconciliation with one another. So what Paul does in these verses is he follows the pattern that he set in the previous 10 verses. First, he addresses the state we were in prior to being a disciple. That's verses 11 and 12. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. So what Paul is arguing is that apart from Christ, no one is a part of the people of God, right? That's verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. And what Paul is doing here, similar to what he did in the previous verses, is continuing to highlight the fall of man. Now, many of you have heard me say this before. Again, this is a little bit of review for some of you, but we got visitors, so it's new. But I believe that the fall of man is recorded in Genesis 3 and 4, right? We added the headings. We called it the fall of man. But I think God is telling us the fall of man in Genesis 3 and 4. Genesis 3 highlights man's separation with God, but Genesis 4 highlights our separation with one another. That's the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother Abel. And the reason I think that they're both telling the fall is because there's a literary link between the two chapters. In Genesis 3, 9, God asks the ethical question, where are you to Adam and Eve? And then in Genesis 4, 9, God asked the ethical question of where is your brother to Cain after he murdered him? And so what we see is a connection between Genesis 2 and 3. God is telling one story. And what he wants us to see is that sin did not just destroy our relationship with God. Sin also destroyed our relationship with one another. So the fall of man creates hostility, again, not just between us and God, but also between one another. But here's the beauty and the breadth of Jesus's redemptive work. Not only was Christ's death and resurrection sufficient to reconcile us back to God, it's sufficient to reconcile us to one another. I mean, that's what Paul argues. Look with me again at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So he's taking Jew and Gentile, the greatest ethnic divide at the time, and he's saying that you who were so distinct and separate where there was hostility, Christ has made you one. He is our peace. And then he says, in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. 
God is not only concerned about how we live in relationship with him. He is also concerned about how we live in relationship with one another. Because please hear me, Jesus's death and resurrection not only reconciled you to God, but it has also reconciled you to one another. In other words, the earthly things that once divided us no longer divide us. Where there was once hostility, Christ has provided peace and unity. And I want you to hear me. I chose my words very carefully. Christ has already reconciled your relationship with one another. As Paul writes about what Christ has accomplished, he's writing about it in the past tense. In Christ, you are already reconciled to God. And in Christ, you are already reconciled to one another, meaning you have that reconciliation now. So if you are not living in reconciled relationships where there was once hostility, we are not living as disciples because we already have reconciliation. We're choosing not to walk it out. You know, great example of this. This is Martin Luther King Jr., I guess it's not the whole weekend. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where we reflect on the life and legacy of this man. And one of his most famous quotes that so many of us know is, I think it's one of the great tragedies of our nations. He said this in 1960 when he was being interviewed on Meet the Press. He said, I, I think it is one of the greatest tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. And we stopped there, but that's actually not the best part of the quote. The best part of the quote is what he says afterwards, where he argues that we vacate the testimony and the evidence of Jesus when we refuse to live reconciled lives. That's a great quote, but the second half's better. That the expectation for those of us who are in Christ is that we would live reconciled lives. Just to be clear, this is one of the reasons at Newbury Church why we value diversity, and we're not afraid of that. And I want you to hear me. It's not because it was trendy for a season. Listen, recently, uh, Pastor Jamal and I, Pastor Jamal, who's the lead pastor at Sojourn, he joined me to have a discussion with a group of college students about cultivating multi-ethnic community. And as we're talking, he said one thing that was so true and it was so good. So like any pastor, I'm going to steal it from him and act like it's mine. But he said this, that by and large, the church in America has moved on from this conversation about cultivating a diverse church. And it's true. By and large, the church in America is over this conversation. They've moved on. But the reason we haven't is because it was never a passion born out of trendiness for us. It was a passion that was birthed out of a gospel that reconciles us to God and to one another as evidence of what Christ has done for us. The reason we long to see at New Breed ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity and age diversity and cultural diversity in our church is because in creation, God intended for diversity and unity to coexist for his glory. And you know what he said about it? It's good. And then the fall happened and we lost it. But the beauty of Christ's redeeming work is that he has reconciled sinful people to himself and to one another. And it is by the grace of God that we can fellowship together and it is good. So why would we not want to experience that goodness? In Christ, we can experience reconciliation with God and with one another. And as disciples, we are experiencing it. I know that Christ's death and, death and resurrection has provided reconciliation with one another because what we do in here makes no sense apart from Jesus. 
I'm just being honest, it makes no sense apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, some of us definitely would not be spending time with one another. Can we be honest for a minute? Like, some of us would barely like each other, let alone be friends. One of my dearest friends in this room is your very own deacon, Carlos, even though he is a much better friend to me than I am to him. But it makes no sense that we're friends. Like, we come from different cultural backgrounds. We had different childhoods. We like different things. There is no reason our families should be sharing meals together, sharing family moments with one another. There is no reason they should have asked my wife and I to be the godparents of their children. But God. And I am a more Christ-like person because of it. Church, hear me. Christ has already provided you reconciliation with him and with one another. And a disciple of Jesus will live in the reconciliation that Christ has provided. It's not trendy for us. It's gospel. But I don't want you to miss this. Believing that a disciple is an individual who is reconciled to others, just like being an individual, uh, a disciple is an individual who is reconciled to God demands something of you. Being reconciled to one another demands something of you as well. Because look at what Paul writes there beginning in verse 17. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you. So that is Jesus. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. I want you to pay close attention to verse 17. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and to you who were near. I want you to see the beauty of this because Jesus was so confident in the reconciliation that he would provide. He proclaimed the good news. He proclaimed the gospel to people who were far and to people who were near. He preached to people who shared his ethnic background and those who didn't. He preached to the rich and he preached to the poor. He preached to the healthy. He preached to the sick. He preached to the tax collector. He preached to the Sadducees. He preached to the ones the world hated and he preached to the ones the world loved because Jesus knew the reconciling power of the gospel. He pursued diverse disciples. And if Jesus is our example, It means that we too must preach the gospel to people who are rich and preach the gospel to people who are poor. We preach the gospel to people who are healthy and to people who are sick. We preach the gospel to the sinner and the ones who are trying to act like saints. We proclaim to the ones the world hates and the ones the world loves. Please hear me. A person does not have to think like you, talk like you, look like you, vote like you, have the same bank account as you to be a potential disciple of Jesus Christ. The only requirement is that they have breath in their lungs. And I wonder if maybe the reason we struggle to make disciples is though we may not say it, we don't actually believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is strong enough to reach certain people. Or maybe we could say it like this. Maybe if we're honest, I wonder if the reason we struggle to make disciples is because we're actually trying to make disciples who look like us, not Jesus. And we want people who think like us, who talk like us, who vote like us. Their quality qualified candidates to be a disciple. But can I just remind you, as Paul declares in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God. 
And you and I are living testimonies of just how powerful that gospel is. The reconciliation that we live in with God, the reconciliation that we live in with one another is evidence that our God is still strong to save. You know, Jesus summed up the entirety of the law by saying, love God and love people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to do that, to love God as we live in reconciled relationships with him and to love people as we live in reconciled relationships with diverse people united under the banner of Jesus Christ. So when we say, church, that we exist to make disciples, we are saying that we exist to see people reconciled to God and to see people reconciled to one another and then As Jesus calls us to in the Great Commission, we walk with them to teach them what that entails. This is what we are about, church. This is what we believe God has called each and every one of us to do. And so by God's grace, my prayer is that we would be found faithful as we exist to make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, I thank you. I thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were slaves to sin, this world, Satan, when we were by nature children of wrath, you loved us so much that you stepped in. But God, God, I pray that we would just marvel at our salvation that we would be reminded from where it is that you have saved us, that we would be reminded what it is you have called us to, and as we celebrate the reconciliation we have with you and with one another, it would motivate us to faithfully pursue you, our God, who has been so faithful to us. God, I've been praying it repeatedly throughout my study for this series and as we continue to move forward, but I pray that the words of our mission, that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel wouldn't just be words that make our website look pretty and fit nice on the back of t-shirts, but that they would be the words that define who we are and what we believe you have called us to do all for your fame and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.